Susan is Professor Emerita of Creative Writing English in the Creighton University MFA and Undergraduate Creative Writing Programs. Today she will present Writing the Elegy, Challenges and Approaches, in which she'll look at samples of successful elegies and consider how they succeed, in addition to leading a free writing session to inspire the generation of your own new work. Please join me in welcoming Susan Eisenberg. Thank you, Rachel. Um, yeah, my husband and I moved to Iowa City three years ago, and for me, this is paradise. I can't think of a better place for a writer to live. Um, okay, I want to begin by thanking Amy Margolis and the Iowa Summer Writing Festival for giving me the opportunity to give this talk. I also want to thank Rachel for her help in getting prepared for it. And I want to thank all of you for coming out today to listen. So today I'm going to talk about writing elegies. My focus will be on poetry, but I think that many of the challenges for poets and the considerations we bring to the form will apply across literary genres, at least to some extent. I'm going to start by giving you just a bit of introductory information. Then we'll take a look at the poems I've assembled on your handout to see what we can learn from them for our own work. And I'd like to leave some time, finally, for us to do a bit of writing together, perhaps share what we've written, and hopefully for a question or two. I'd like to begin with the quotations you'll find at the top of your handout, starting with the definition of elegy from Ed Hirsch's A Poet's Glossary. He writes, elegy, a poem of mortal loss and consolation, derives from the Greek el legos, funeral lament. From Yahan Ramazani's Poetry of Mourning, broadly defined, the elegy permeates a wide range of poems about war, love, race, gender, meditation, the self, the family, and the poet. And finally, from Kevin Young, I think it is in grief that we need some reminder of our humanity, and sometimes someone to say it for us. Poetry steps in at those moments when ordinary words fail, poetry as ceremony, as closure to what cannot be closed. The elegy, as poet Amy Gersler and others have pointed out, is a wonderfully capacious form that can include everything mentioned by Ramazani here and more. You can find many definitions of the term, and in fact, it can be challenging to talk about the history of the elegy because those definitions have changed over time. And of course, different cultures, religions, and societies have different elegiac traditions. For our purposes today, I'm going to focus on the modern and contemporary English language elegy that has to do with personal loss, specifically the death of someone close to the poet or speaker. If you're interested in learning more about the history and uses of the form, the books listed above are a great place to start, and I've also noted some useful websites at the end of your handout. Many of the challenges involved in writing an elegy are, of course, the same challenges we face writing any poem or literary work. 
how do we successfully recreate an experience for the reader? How do we make art work that transcends mere self-expression to create something that will move a reader, that will, as Horace famously described the aim of the poet, inform or delight or to combine together in what he says both pleasure and applicability to life. The answers to such questions can take a lifetime to discover and put into practice. But the one we can perhaps control the most has to do, I believe, with our use of language itself and with mastering such basic elements of craft as diction, syntax, image, metaphor, rhythm, and sound. However, writing an elegy also can in often involve some particular emotional challenges for the poet. Often just finding the ability to speak or write about a death we've experienced can be terrifically hard. To feel we have a right to make art out of such experience can be an issue for some of us. For many of us, no matter how painful the subject matter, the making of a poem is a kind of very powerful pleasure publication another, and that can feel wrong. Mary Jo Bang, one of whose powerful elegies for her son I've included on the handout, has spoken about her own guilt at the success of the book of poems she'd written about his death, which received a National Book Critics Circle Award and brought her work lots of attention. Each of us has to deal with such difficult questions in our own way. Assuming we do claim the right to write such poems, finding a way to get our grief into language can be daunting. One idea I think particularly useful is offered by poets Kim Adonizio and Dorian Lux in their book, The Poet's Companion. They suggest beginning by keeping what they call a grief journal, writing in it as often as possible, using it as a place for exploration, knowing the writing in there may not, as they write, result in terrific poetry, but that, as they go on to say, it's probable that you'll find the seeds of poems when you're ready to go back to that raw place and try to shape something from it. Such a grief journal can take many forms. When I was caring for my mother during the last weeks of her life, I didn't have the time or energy even to open a notebook, but I needed to write, and did so in whatever moments I could grab in the form of brief notes on my phone and emails and texts to my husband, brother, and friends. Months after my mother's death, when I could look at them, I did find those seeds for poems. I'll mention, too, that for many poets, including myself, focusing on difficult technical elements, even writing in a received form, can help in making it possible to speak. Again, each of us ultimately has to find our own way. And that way may be different for us at different times in different circumstances. One thing I believe is always helpful is reading the work of other poets. Okay, so with all that in mind, let's turn to your handout. I should say that this handout could, of course, been hundreds of pages long. Uh, 
And if you just Google the word elegy or refer to the short list of resources I've included at the end, you'll find many, many more fine poems. The ones I've chosen here are for the most part contemporary poems. And I've tried to give you some examples that illustrate various approaches you might take in your own work. Of course, there are many more. This first poem is likely familiar to many of you. And while not exactly a contemporary poem, I've included it here because I agree with Kevin Young, who in the introduction to his anthology calls it one of the heights of the form. And a poem that, as he writes, may indeed inaugurate the contemporary elegy. Its dispassionate testimony, its unerring grief, its blunt riffing off the musical blues form, the strictness of his form substituting for the blues repeating phrases and tragicomic humor all seem part of the modern elegy. Funeral Blues, W.H. Auden. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos, and with muffled drum, Bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let airplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song, I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood, for nothing now can ever come to any good. As many of you probably know, the actor John Hanna recited this poem in the film Four Weddings and a Funeral and revived such interest in it that a reprint of it in pamphlet form was quickly published. An illustration, I think, of the truth that even folks who don't usually read poetry often feel a great need for it, especially in times of mourning or celebration. A great deal of the a great deal, excuse me, of the beauty and power of this poem is the result, of course, of Auden's brilliant mastery of elements of received form. The AABB rhyme pattern, the iambic pentameter meter, the music of the language, his use of incantatory repetition. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week, and my Sunday rest. And with this poem, we see one approach to the elegy that you might consider in writing your own, which is that we don't really know from the poem much about the hymn. This poem is more about recreating the intense emotion of the speaker's grief. And we recognize this grief if we've experienced it. A crude paraphrase might be that we have that sense that our world has stopped. Nothing will ever be the same for us and that it seems somehow terrible and wrong that the rest of the world is going on. A more contemporary poem in which the speaker also does not really tell us much about the you of the poem in any kind of specific way, although there are a few things mentioned, is Mary Jo Bang's Elegy for Her Son. You were, you are, elegy. 
fragile like a child is fragile, destined not to be forever, destined to become other to mother. Here I am, sitting on a chair, thinking about you, thinking about how it was to talk to you, how sometimes it was wonderful and sometimes it was awful, how drugs, when drugs were, undid the good almost entirely, but not entirely, because good could always be seen, glimmering like lame glimmers in the window of a shop called Beautiful Things Never Last Forever. I loved you, I love you, you were, and you are. Life is experience, it's all so simple. Experience is the chair we sit on, the sitting, the thinking of you, where you are a blank to be filled in by missing. I loved you, I love you, like I love all beautiful things. True beauty is truly seldom. You were, you are, in May. May now is looking onto the June that is coming up. This is how I measure the year. Everything was my fault has been the theme of the song I've been singing. Even when you've told me to quiet, I haven't been quiet. I've been crying. I think you have forgiven me. You keep putting your hand on my shoulder when I'm crying. Thank you for that and for the ineffable sense of continuance. You were, you are the brightest thing in the shop window and the most beautiful seldom I ever saw. Here we have again an incantatory rhythm achieved in part through the use of repetition, short sentences and Bang's use of enjambment. And one of the things that strikes me about this poem is that the feeling of grief is so powerfully recreated because it's so honest. The speaker's pain and guilt seem nakedly presented without any sort of prettifying or excuses. This next poem is an elegy that Toy Derricott wrote for her husband. And with this one, I'd like you to notice that not only do we have once again that incantatory rhythm, but here we begin to have a lot more narrative detail, almost a Whitmanesque catalog in which we're given quite a bit of information in a short space about both the speaker and her dead. Elegy for my husband. Bruce Derricott, June 22nd, 1928 to June 21st, 2011. What was there is no longer there, not the blood running its wires of flame through the whole length, not the memories, the texts written in the language of the flat hills, no, not the memories, the porch swing and the father crying, the genteel and elegant aunt bleeding out on the highway, too black for the white ambulance to pick up, who had sent back lacquered plates from China, who had given away her best ivory comb that one time she was angry, not the muscles, the ones the white girls longed to touch but must not, for your mother warned you would be lynched in that all-white Ohio town you grew up in, not that same town where you were the only, the one good black boy, all that is gone not the muscles running, the baseball flying into your mitt, not the hand that laid itself over my heart and saved me, 
not the eyes that held the long gold tunnel I believed in, not the restrained hand in love and in anger, not the holding back, not the taut holding. Here you see carefully chosen details that tell us something about the speaker's husband, the society in which they grew up and how that affected them, and which also brings in the death of another person, the aunt. So here you have more specific context. The other thing I'd like to point out is that the poem largely proceeds through the use of negative statements, not the blood running its wires of flame through the whole length, not the memories, the texts written in the language of the flat hills, no, not the memories. Often a very useful technique in articulating what is too painful or just too difficult to express can be by saying what it's not. You know, it's funny, as I read these poems to you, I have to do this weird thing. I, I do this often in my own readings of my own work, where I have to sort of not, I have to read it and not pay attention to what it actually says, because otherwise I'll be crying. These poems, I think, are so powerfully moving. Okay, so uh, this next one is a short one by Deborah Diggs. And what I'd like you to notice here is the way in which the speaker uses objects, in this case, clothes and items from a closet to shape her elegy. Seersucker suit. To the curator of the museum, to the exhibition of fathers, to the next room from this closet of trousers and trousers, full sail, oh, the great ghost ships of his shoes, through the racks and the riggings, belt buckles ringing and coins in coat pockets, and moths that fly up from the black woolen remnants, his smell like a kiss blown through hallways of cedar, the shape of him locked in his burial clothes, his voice tucked deep in his name, his keys and the bells to his heart. I am passing his light blue seersucker suit with one grass-stained knee and a white shirt, clean boxers, clean socks, a handkerchief. Here you see the speaker apparently performing one of the tasks that often befalls us after a death, especially of a parent, which is going through and deciding what to do with their clothes and personal belongings. These kinds of quotidian rituals and traditions can offer us another entry into elegy. I'd like you to notice here, as in the other poems, that while with the exception of Auden, these are not in received form, there is a good deal of internal rhyme, repetition, and rhythm. This one's not incantatory per se, but you do hear that rhythm and those repetitions. So there's a music created. And as we know, the music of a poem is as much how a poem means as anything else about it. Two other things I would like you to notice about this poem and many of the others are, first, again, the level of detail. So for example, we have here the suit with its one grass-stained knee walnut hangers. Such detail creates a vivid real world for the reader and also tells us something about the speaker and characters. And second, notice the ways in which poets shape those details to create powerful metaphor. Oh, the great ghost ships of his shoes, his smell like a kiss blown through the hallways of cedar. 
All right, I know I'm moving through rather quickly here, but I'd like to be able to get to all these poems and still have time for you to write and hopefully ask some questions. <clears throat> okay, this is called Poof by Amy Gersler. And you'll notice that this is a longer, more conversational-seeming poem. Um, here, the poet tries to capture a lifelong friendship, which is a lot to do in a single elegy. But I think this is a masterful example of how you might do that. Notice throughout all the details and the kinds of details Gersler chooses. Poof. Here on my lap in a small plastic bag, my share of your ashes. Let me not squander them. Your family blindsided me with this gift. We want to honor your bond, they said at the end of your service, which took place as you'd arranged in a restaurant at the harbor, an old two-story boathouse made of dark wood. Some of us sat on the balcony on black leather bar stools, staring at rows of docked boats. Both your husbands showed up and got along, and of course your impossibly handsome son. After lunch, a slideshow and testimonials, your family left to toss their share of you onto the ocean, along with some flowers. You were the girlfriend I practiced kissing with in sixth grade during zero sleep sleepovers. You were the pretty one. In middle school, I lived on Diet Coke and your sexual reconnaissance reports. In this telling of our story, your father never hits you or calls you a whore. Always gentle with me, he taught me to ride a bike after everyone said I was too klutzy to learn. In this version, we're not afraid of our bodies. In this fiction, birth control is easy to obtain and never fails. You still dive under a stall divider in a restroom at the beach to free me after I get too drunk to unlock the door. You still reveal the esoteric mysteries of tampons. Still learn Farsi and French from boyfriends as your life ignites. In high school, I still guide you safely out of the stadium when you start yelling that the football looks amazing as it shatters into a million shimmering pieces as you loudly admit that you just dropped acid. We live to be 60, then poof, you vanished. I can't snort you or dump you out over my head, coating myself in your dust like some hapless cartoon character who's just blown herself up, yet remains unscathed, as is the way in cartoons. In this version, I remain in place for a while. Did you have a good journey? I'm still lagging behind, barking up all the wrong trees, whipping out my scimitar far in advance of what the occasion demands. As I drive home from your memorial, you fizz in my head like a distant radio station. What can I do to bridge this chasm between us? In this fiction, I roll down the window, drive uncharacteristically fast. I tear your baggie open with my teeth and release you at 85 miles an hour, music cranked up full blast. <clears throat> couple of things I'd like to draw your attention to here. First, the poem sounds very conversational. This is not particularly elevated language. Also, it's quite narrative. 
The speaker begins with the plastic bag of ashes in her lap, wondering what she's going to do with them so as to not squander them, and this situation appears to unlock both recent and old memories. Notice, too, the speaker is very conscious of telling herself and us a story that has different versions, which may or may not be true, and that there's no apparent concern here with not speaking ill of the dead or not telling tales out of school. The poem talks about acid trips and a father who hit the friend who's died has called her a whore. It can be a difficult choice to include such things in our elegies. Gerstler, for example, might have worried about hurting her friend's grieving family with some of these details. We don't know. But these are the kinds of things many of us, at least, have to think about when working on elegies, as, of course, we do with other poems as well. In a note accompanying this poem online at poets.org, Gerstler tells us this elegy blends predominantly real and a few fictionalized details. And of course, as readers, we don't know which are which. One thing I think it's important to notice when thinking about writing our own poems is that the poem certainly reads to us as if everything in it is true. As a result, at least in part, of these extremely vivid details, and I think of the intimate, confiding voice of the speaker here. Okay, here's another poem that attempts to let us know, at least partly, the person who's been lost. And in this one, the speaker focuses on a very specific memory of something that person loved, in this case, basketball. This is by Ed Hirsch, it's called Fast Break, in memory of Dennis Turner, 1946 to 1984. A hook shot kisses the rim and hangs there helplessly, but doesn't drop. And for once, our gangly starting center boxes out his man and times his jump perfectly, gathering the orange leather from the air like a cherished possession and spinning around to throw a strike to the outlet who is already shoveling an underhand pass toward the other guard, scissoring past a flat-footed defender who looks stunned and nailed to the floor in the wrong direction trying to catch sight of a high, gliding dribble and a man letting the play develop in front of him in slow motion, almost exactly like a coach's drawing on the blackboard, both forwards racing down the court the way that forwards should, fanning out and filling the lanes in tandem, moving together as brothers passing the ball between them without a dribble, without a single bounce hitting the hardwood, until the guard finally lunges out and commits to the wrong man, while the power forward explodes past them in a fury, taking the ball into the air by himself now and laying it gently against the glass for a layup, but losing his balance in the process inexplicably falling, hitting the floor with a wild, headlong motion for the game he loved like a country, and swiveling back to see an orange blur floating perfectly through the net. There's a great uh, PBS special about poetry where Hirsch reads this poem, and they have a couple of basketball players acted out, and then they have, I can't remember, like Shaquille O'Neal or Charles Barkley or some big basketball star talk about the poem. If you can check it out, it's great. Um, so as you can see here, this entire poem spends its time describing a play in what sounds like a pickup or at least an amateur basketball game. And it uses that as a way to bring the memory of the person, in this case Dennis Turner, to life for the reader. 
One thing that may be obvious to you, but that I think is worth reminding ourselves when we come to work, is that Hirsch does such a convincing job of creating this scene for us. It unfolds like a little movie in the mind, Turner losing his balance and falling inexplicably such an apt metaphor for his early death, that it's easy to imagine that this really happened like this. But it's important to remember that this is art, not journalism, and that Hirsch may have drawn on any number of different memories, as well as on his imagination, to shape this particular scene for us. How you feel about how close to the facts your poems need to be is, of course, a personal decision. But I think, as uh, Richard Hugo famously wrote, if you believe all music must conform to truth, rather than the opposite, you're making your job a lot harder. All right, try to get at least one or two more of these. <clears throat> Marie Howe's What the Living Do seems to me a poem of both praise and gratitude, and it's one of my very favorite contemporary elegies. What the Living Do. Johnny, the sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the Drano won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky's a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you called that yearning what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments, walking, when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living, I remember you. This poem seems to me one of the best I've ever read about how it feels to be going on after a death and how as daily life continues, one thinks of that person that's been lost and how they don't have any of this anymore, these ordinary daily things. Here again, we might notice the poet's choice of very specific details and images and how vividly they recreate the speaker's world and emotions. The ending of this poem is, for me, intensely moving, its sense of wonder at being alive and the way in which, through our memories, we keep our dead alive within us. Elegies can, in fact, take many tones, some of them pretty unexpected. And I've included an example of a poem that I think does that by Ruth Stone. I'd like you to notice here the poet's use of humor and the ways in which Stone so economically expresses both the loneliness and anger of grief. As is the case with so many of these poems, here the speaker directly addresses her dead. Curtains. 
Putting up new curtains, other windows intrude, as though it is that first winter in Cambridge when you and I had just moved in, now cold borscht alone in a bare kitchen. What does it mean if I say this years later? Listen, last night I am on a crying jag with my landlord, Mr. Tempesta. I sneaked in two cats. He screams, no pets, no pets. I become my Aunt Virginia, proud but weak in the head. I remember Anna Magnani. I throw a few books, I shout. He wipes his eyes and opens his hands. Okay, okay, keep the dirty animals, but no nails in the walls. We cry together. I am so nervous, he says. I want to dig you up and say, look, it's like the time, remember, when I ran into our living room naked to get rid of the fire inspector. See what you miss by being dead? All right, I'm going to finish up with a poem by Natasha Trethaway, in which the speaker remembers her deceased father by focusing, as Hirsch does, on a specific activity, and also meditates a bit on the very nature of writing elegies. Elegy for my father. I think by now the river must be thick with salmon. Late August, I imagine it as it was that morning. Drizzle needling the surface, mist at the banks like a net settling around us, everything damp and shining. That morning, awkward and heavy in our hip waders, we stalked into the current and found our places. You upstream a few yards and out far deeper. You must remember how the river seeped in over your boots and you grew heavier with that defeat. All day I kept turning to watch you, how first you mimed our guide's casting, then cast your invisible line, slicing the sky between us, and later, rod in hand, how you tried again and again to find that perfect arc, flight of an insect skimming the river's surface. Perhaps you recall I cast my line and reeled in two small trout we could not keep. Because I had to release them, I confess I thought about the past working the hooks loose, the fish writhing in my hands, each one slipping away before I could let go. I can tell you now that I tried to take it all in, record it for an elegy I'd write one day when the time came. Your daughter, I was that ruthless. What does it matter if I tell you I learned to be? You kept casting your line, and when it did not come back empty, it was tangled with mine. Some nights, dreaming, I step again into the small boat that carried us out and watch the bank receding, my back to where I know we are headed. <clears throat> Here again, the poem casts the memory very specifically in an activity, the speaker and her father fishing together. Trethaway's masterful language is such that the action in the poem feels innately rich in metaphor, especially the ending. Some nights dreaming, I step again into the small boat that carried us out and watch the bank receding, my back to where I know we are headed. We cannot help but read that last image as referring to both the father's and the speaker's deaths. As is so often the case with the best metaphor, it works at least in part because the image works on both the literal and figurative level. Okay, so just a sampling of 
wonderful poems and approaches. What I'd like to do now, um, oh, and I will mention on that last page again, there are some additional resources for you. Um, I'd like to let you do a little bit of writing. And I have a little assignment for you. I want you to spend 10 minutes, so maybe you'll write five lines, or 10 if you write really fast, towards a poem, towards an elegy. And I want you to begin with Toy Derricotte's first line. What was there is no longer there. What was there is no longer there is going to be your first line. And then using negative construction as she did, I want you to free write a short catalog, five or ten lines, of details about the person, imagined or real, the speaker has lost. So the poem will be, what was there is no longer there. Not this, not that, not that, so on. And to see what you come up with. Um, and then I'll you know, see if a, a few of you might want to share what you've written, and then we can have some questions. So I will give you 10 minutes. Go ahead and get started on that. All right. Um, I thought perhaps one or two of you would be willing to share what you've written, and then I'll be glad to ask some question, answer some questions if I can. Yes. What was there is no longer there. Not hate, not love, not fear, not happiness, not sorrow, but a longing for what could have been. Thank you. For Oren, what was there is no longer there, not the anger you spewed which sounded blood red, not the music we heard from your speakers instead, not the dancing and preening so long in your head, not the joy of your laughter before coffin and bed. Thank you. Anybody else? What was there is no longer there. Not the thin gray smoke of fallen mango trees. Not the black tin pot in which you cook juca, onions, and beef. There's no more cutting away the jungle, machete in hand, as I walk to find you. There's no more salsa or cumbia blasting through old speakers, gone tinny with time and humidity. This no longer exists on the mountain you called home, no. Now I must hold it within me. Thank you. Very nice. Lady over here. It's called Jean. It's about my dad. What was there is no longer there. The receipts that you accumulate, the emails you insisted on printing out in their entirety. Not there is the warm but awkward embrace at our meeting. Not there is the insistence that we go to Europe again. Not there is the need to ask you to turn down this CNN. Not there is the twinkle, the wit, the sometimes slow way you formed your words. They have been replaced in my head by your dreamscape. And yes, I did remember to pay the tax. Thank you. Thank you very much. Maybe one more. What was there is no longer there. Not your smile, the constant presence of acceptance. Not the phone ringing with you at the other end. Not our wandering through the art festival, summers strung together. 
nor the quiet sharing over wine in plastic cups, not the welcoming huge tail-wagging creature inside your front door, not the fading that began as the being of you left long before you were gone, nor the words left behind in other rooms you searched for and finally gave up, not the sadness as you slipped away from the creature who was you. Thank you. Um, Rachel, maybe just one more. What was there is no longer there. Not the saliva slipping from your smile, not the pain in your gut, not the paper and pencil in your gnarly hands, not the violin and its horsehair bow. No, not the harsh memories and not the good ones, not the brother, the sisters, not the parents who squeezed you too close and almost snuffed the last light out of you. Not the holding back, the serving others, the denying your selfless self. There's only your hydrangeas and sunflowers, your drawings and me for a while. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, it sounds to me, and I would be willing to bet that the ones I haven't heard, that you've all got the beginnings of elegies you can work on here. Um, we have time if anybody has a question. I'll try to answer if I can. Okay, th um, thank you for your talk. Um, question, somewhere along the way, third or halfway through, you said something about music, um, on truth and music. And I, I love the thought, but could you explain a little? I didn't understand, are you, do you know the line that you said? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, <clears throat> Richard Hugo, great poet and teacher, uh, wrote a wonderful book, a collection of um, essays on writing poetry called The Triggering Town, which I highly recommend if you're a poet and you've never read it. Little book, it's quite wonderful. And in one of them, he talks about the nature of facts in poems. And he, makes, he takes the position that poets assume one of two stances in relationship to their work. Either that all truth must conform to music or all music must conform to truth. A again, a sort of a crude way to sum up what he means is that, and we talked about this in our workshop, and by the way, thanks to my workshop for being here to support me. Um, we, um, in other words, say you're writing a poem, and the facts of the poem are, this happened to me with a poem I'd written as a student, the character in the poem drove a Volvo. And I had this Volvo in the poem, and the poet I was working with as my mentor at the time said, that is completely wrong for this poem. This person needs to drive a caddy. Sounds better. It works better. In my poem, it became a caddy, because for me, Truth in a, poet, in a poem must conform to music, not the other way around. To somebody else, it's vitally important that if it was a Volvo, it's a Volvo. And what, and you know, truth is a little bit, maybe not quite the word I'd use. I might say facts um, versus truth. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, Hugo believed fervently that all truth must conform to music. And, I personally agree with him. 
but not everybody does. And you know how you feel about it will be up to you. But I do agree with him that if you believe all music must conform to truth, you're making the job of writing a really good poem much harder because you're not putting the things that make a poem a poem first, if that makes sense. Does that help? Thank you. So Susan, the elegy seems to me to be an inherently sentimental form. Um, if you have any tips for um, resisting sentimentality and not sort of descending into it and having the poem just become immersed in sentimentality. Yeah, that's, that is part of the difficulty, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, the writer Bill Kittredge famously said, um, if you're not in the ballpark of sentimentality, you're missing the point. But of course, the point was, you're in that ballpark, but you're not in sentimentality. You're, you've got honest sentiment and emotion, but you keep out of sentimentality. So there's a number of things um, I think we can think about. One is, write out all your sentimental stuff, but that isn't the stuff that goes in the poem. That isn't the stuff that goes in the world. Because the problem with sentimentality is, you're moving yourself, you're not gonna move me. I need something else from that poem to feel what you're feeling. And what that something else is, you know, I go back to those elements of craft, specific images, focusing on diction and syntax. Getting rid of abstractions will go a long way to keep you out of sentimentality. Because if you think about it, most of the sentimental language we use it heavily relies on abstract nouns, lots of adjectives. If you tell yourself, I'm gonna use nouns and verbs here, and I'm gonna be specific, um, you will greatly up your chances of not being sentimental. The, the idea is for, and again, you know, there's a difference between a poem or a story or an essay meant for publication and your journal entries. Your journal entries, I mean, I would die if anyone read my journal entries. They're full of sentimental, terrible writing, um, and that's fine. But when you're making art, you're now doing something else. And now you're thinking about the reader, not yourself. It's part of what's so difficult about an elegy or any poem that is rooted in very strong emotion. Sometimes it, it takes a long time. Um, my first collection, Muse, my first full-length collection, opens with a long elegy for the great Linda Hull, um, one of the finest lyric poets of our generation who died too young and who I was lucky enough to study with. It took me four years to be able to write that poem after her death because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't distance myself enough to make a poem. And sometimes that's part of it. You need time. Um, you have to be able to be both in it passionately, but also to be able to step back and look at it as a made thing and not just an outpouring of your feelings. I don't know, is that, what Great. do you do when you write <laughs> to avoid being sentimental? What you said. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I get rid of the abstractions. When, if I'm going into yeah. abstraction, I know I'm headed in the wrong direction. I think, yeah, I yeah. think that's always a safe bet to look at the level of language. Um, because what you're, what you're doing, the poem, 
Readers might not like to think this, but as poets, we have to recognize what poetry is fundamentally about is language. It's not fundamentally about all those things we're saying. Because all those things we're saying can be said lots and lots of ways. So what makes a poem a poem? I would argue it's the attention to and the very particular use of language. What a wonderful note to end on and useful note. Thank you so much, Susan. Oh, thank you all for thank joining you. us today. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much.